0: The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hi, listeners, and welcome back. My guest today is Janessa J. Champagne, a drag queen living in North Dakota. Recently, I put out a little inquiry on one of the social platforms looking for sexual assault survivors who'd be willing to talk to me, which I know is a huge thing to ask for. But I was really grateful when Janessa reached out to me. And today we're going to talk with them about stealthing and their experience with that. We're going to talk about what it means and how it works and what it was like. And as always, you're going to find links in the episode description and on the Empowerment Project Facebook group to resources and more information about this topic. I had never heard about it before, so I'm getting educated at the same time you are. And maybe you already have heard about stealthing, but I didn't know it had this name. Stealthing, as we'll find out, is something that we've actually talked about before, especially in our domestic violence episodes. It's a way of power and control. And so without further ado, hi, Janessa, welcome. I'm really glad to have you here.
1: Hello. Yes. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. I want to thank you in advance uh, for just for reaching out, for being willing to talk about your story, for sharing it with us. Talking about abuse can be really hard. It's so intimate. It's so personal. But talking about it can make a huge difference, not just for you, not just for me, but for all of us, everyone who's listening. So again, thank you. And I would love to start by letting my listeners find out more about you as much as you feel like sharing things like where you grew up, what that was like, where you live now, what you do, how you spend your time, like give us the rundown. Who are you?
1: Absolutely. So I am from Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I grew up in a little tiny town, Bobels, North Dakota. It was my mom's hometown, and it was about 450 people when I was growing up. I think it's even smaller now, and just typical small-town town experience growing up, figured out pretty early on that I didn't seem to fit in with everybody else. Uh, Everybody Mm -hmm. else seemed to understand all of these rules that I just didn't get. And so I, you know, tried to figure out what was going on. And then I went to college and I started learning about queer theory and the history of drag and had my own coming out process and just started And then just started to explore drag and started to explore that sort of performance, um, both academically and personally. Um, and I've been a performer since two thousand and one, so it's coming up on twenty years. Wow, so uh, i'm <laughs> I've been in the business for a long time. It's a fun side hobby, and it's given me some really interesting opportunities. And in addition to that, I like I do YouTube. Um, I'm a big fan of YouTube. I've been doing that for a little less than a year. That's what I did in quarantine. I didn't try to bake sourdough bread. I just started a YouTube channel. <laughs> And so that was my project. Um, I do a little bit of podcasting here and there. I have a series about mental health and self-help that I call Miss J, The Renovation. Uh, It's going to be 17 episodes. I'm only about nine episodes in. It's taking me much longer than I expected, but it's been a lot of fun. And so I like to play around with different things. I like to do... Um, upcycling furniture projects. So I'll go to the thrift store and look for fun pieces that I can paint and add fabric to or do different kind of detailing to and just kind of live my best life here in Grand Forks.
0: That's amazing. So you're so creative. And we can link to your podcast in the episode uh, description. I'd like to do that for listeners who would like to find it. Um, So basically, you're super creative, outside the box. What's that like living in North Dakota? It's
1: interesting. It's definitely a challenge sometimes. I have always wondered why I stay here and why I haven't moved somewhere else. People ask me about that. And so I've spent some time thinking about it. And I think that for me, it's about the fact that North Dakota is where there is work to be done. So I could just move to a big city Mm. and there's all kinds of communities and resources, but they've kind of got it together a little bit more. Not to say that there aren't problems and there aren't challenges everywhere, but North Dakota is where there really is still work to do. It's important for people to have role models and people that they can see and say, you can be queer and live in North Dakota and have a great life because I didn't see that growing up. And I had no idea that that was possible. And so if I can do that and just have a good time and show that, yeah, it's great. You can go other places if you want to. But if you wanted to stay here, if you want to be close to family or if you just like it because it's familiar or whatever the reason is that you want to stay, you can do that and still live a great life.
0: I love that. I am. I don't think my listeners know this yet, but I am a RuPaul Drag Race fan. <laughs> my daughter turned me and my husband onto it. And we love that show. We binge watched all of the episodes like <laughs> in a very short period of time during the pandemic. But I see this over and over again um, from drag queens on the show when they're talking to one another, like that, gosh, my life would have been so different if I had seen someone like me in my life. Yes. And so what you're doing is beautiful. Like you're providing that mentorship, that role modeling to people who, who really need to feel seen to get that it's okay. Like, yeah,
1: representation is so important when you can't. And now the media is so much better. I mean, there's so many more types of representation and so many more sort of virtual outlets. But I think still being able to see that, like where I'm at right now, I can do it. It's not just something that happens in the city or in these other places. It can happen right where I'm at.
0: Right. Right. And you can be where you want to be and be who you are. Oh, God, that's a great message. That's empowerment right there, by the way. (laughs) Um, So you reached out to me with a really particular kind of story. Can you tell us your story? Tell us what happened?
1: Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I was working as a corporate trainer. I was a corporate trainer for about six years and I did a lot of traveling, um, mostly to Seattle and Phoenix were kind of my two primary locations that I would travel to. But I love Seattle. So Seattle is one of my favorite places in the world. I love to explore and find everything from really good hidden away restaurants and little local gems all the way to the tourist traps. I love it all. I love to do it all. So I was traveling for work and I had been on quite a few trips kind of back to back and I was in Seattle and I just noticed that I was exhausted. I was so tired. And typically when I was on a work trip, the company had my time till 5.30 and at 5.30, then I was out the door and I was, you know, trying to find theaters or nightclubs or different little interesting shows or cabarets.
0: Exploring. Or yeah, yeah, just kind
1: of checking out the culture and finding amazing food. If anybody ever goes to Seattle and you want amazing Indian food, Dewat Bar and Grill on Pike Street is my favorite restaurant in the entire world. And thank you. Yeah, it's so good. And I love Indian food. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I've never had anything like it anywhere else. I keep looking. Um, And so I was on this trip and I was so tired. I could barely get myself to even go to a restaurant after work. I was just so tired. And I would go back to the hotel and kind of crash out. And when I got home, I started to notice that my hands were getting really, really dry and I was getting these little blisters and they didn't hurt or anything. They were just kind of a little bit itchy. And I thought, this is not like me. This is not typical. I mean, I, at first I tried to explain it as, you know, it's the airplane and the recycled air and my hands are getting dry and all this stuff. And then I did the rookie mistake that people should never do, where I started Googling symptoms on the internet. (sighs) Yeah. <laughs> so immediately I was convinced I had cancer. You're um,
0: dying, and yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, because I found this article that was like 10 surprising signs that you have cancer. And I had six of them. So then I was like in panic mode. Oh, and I was yeah. getting I was getting ready to make an appointment with my primary care doctor, and I got a phone call from somebody that I had sort of a relationship with, we weren't really dating. It was kind of a friends with benefits sort of thing. And he's a closeted guy who lives in Northern Minnesota and he would travel to Grand Forks for work and we would hook up and things. And he said, I recently went and got tested and I tested positive for something. And, you know, they recommended that I should call people and tell them that they should get tested as well. And we had had all the conversations about safer sex practices and things like that. And so I said, well, thank you so much for telling me. Like, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing better. And, um, you know, thank you for telling me. And I'm, I'm glad that we had those discussions about safer sex and that we decided to use condoms. And he said, well, there's something I need to tell you. And he proceeded to tell me that um, when we had been having sex, he had been removing the condom without my knowledge. And so this was something that um, is called stealthing. And he said that he had done this. And the conversation, I'm a little bit fiery sometimes. So the the conversation devolved pretty quickly after that. I didn't get a lot Mm -hmm. more details. Um, I had a lot of anger. And yeah. um, so we had kind of a, a quick end to that conversation at that point. And I made an appointment to go in and um, did the full range of tests, um, which was nerve wracking. I mean, waiting the 15 minutes for the HIV test was the longest 15 minutes of my life mm-hmm. and all of these things. And it came back that I was positive for syphilis and gonorrhea or no, sorry, chlamydia, um, not gonorrhea. Um, syphilis and chlamydia. And so I got the antibiotics and they gave me an injection and then I got a prescription and it was really strange to me. It was something that I didn't really know how to process. It was something that um, I didn't understand because I felt like I had been doing everything the right way. I'd been having those discussions about, you know, sexual history and preferences around safer sex and all these kinds of things. And then to find out that not only was I not aware of what was happening, but that there were these really potentially devastating consequences because of that.
0: Well, right. That you, right. So you had done all of the things yeah, And then this person wantonly changed the rules without telling you.
1: Yeah, it was, I felt really kind of unmoored. Like I really just was, I didn't have any grounding. I just couldn't understand the situation. I kept trying to kind of put it in my head and make it make sense. And it just wouldn't come together for me.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you're doing everything within your realm. And not only do they change the rules on you, but you have these major consequences that you then are weighted with figuring out for yourself. And they're pretty substantial and scary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I knew about syphilis and, you know, what that looks like and what it can potentially do. And I, who knows, if I hadn't been making that appointment with my doctor, and with the way things sometimes happen You know, if you're not coming in looking for that, who knows if they would have found that right away. And if he hadn't called, you know, how long would this have maybe progressed before, you know, something was done about it? And so looking at the different stages of syphilis, they told me that I had progressed into the second stage. And so the first stage, a lot of times there aren't really any symptoms. And so um, that's why a lot of times people will recommend if you are sexually active, and especially if you're having um, condomless sex, that you should be getting tested regularly, because the first stage of syphilis typically doesn't have any symptoms. And so then, by the time you see these symptoms, like the dry hands and the blisters, and you know the the exhaustion and things like that, you've probably advanced into secondary syphilis, which is where I was at. And so um, it was just such a strange experience and such a strange reality to come to terms with.
0: Totally. And the and how many stages are there of syphilis? Um
1: and then the last stage is tertiary syphilis. I think there's just the three. Um and some people don't ever progress to tertiary syphilis, but that's where it can get very severe. That's where you can have organ failures and you can have blindness. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things, those really devastating consequences.
0: I mentioned that I wanted to just mention the Tuskegee experiment here because we were going to be talking about syphilis. And for listeners who don't know about the Tuskegee experiment, way back in 1932, doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service, which was running a study about syphilis, promised, quote, free health care to 600 African-American men in Macon County, Alabama. However, they did not provide any medical care to these men other than giving them placebos and things like aspirin and minerals. So these men experienced the full force of this disease, including what you just mentioned, Janessa, like blindness, mental health impairment, and death. And this is true even after penicillin was shown to cure this disease. That was in 1947. They continued this lie. They continued lying, saying that they were providing medical treatment when they weren't. And this went on until 1972. So I think we just have to stop for a moment and think about all the men who died and suffered along with all the people they unknowingly passed syphilis onto who also suffered and died. And I would say like this blatant and criminal racism and the resulting trauma that happened less than 50 years ago, it's criminal. Is it any wonder that our black and brown brothers and sisters might be wary of and suspicious of anything having to do with the medical profession? No, I would say no. That's all I wanted to mention, Janessa, because I think we can't talk about syphilis and this amazing cure that you are able to have without also mentioning that. Can you talk a little bit more to us about, you're so smart and you've got this academic background. Can you talk about what you found out about stealthing? This is this term I had never heard of and what it is and what you found out about it.
1: Yeah, so it was something that one of the nurse practitioners at the clinic that I went to to get my testing done had mentioned and said that I should look into. And stealthing is basically somebody who removes some sort of prophylactic device, a condom, a dental dam, without their partner's knowledge or consent. And so Mm -hmm. when you remove it, whether you're trying to cause a pregnancy or you just are trying to control the situation, um, it's done without knowledge or consent. And that was something that I had never heard of before. I had never heard of that as a term and that it was something that people were doing often enough or had experienced often enough that there was a word for it. And as I started looking into it, it was really shocking the way that this has become something that is much more prevalent than I ever would have expected. And it's really interesting because a lot of states don't know how to deal with it in terms of sexual assault laws, because in many of these cases, it's somebody who is having a consensual sexual encounter. That's what I was doing. Certainly, I was having a consensual encounter. But how does that then fit into that dynamic? And what I found is that states really are kind of all over the place. And without going too deeply into it, what I found is that the states that tend to do better about recognizing this as a violation, as an assault, are states where they have much better laws and regulations around informed consent. Um, So the more explicit their laws are about consent, the better they're probably going to handle a case related to stealthing, because what you're doing in essence is taking away the consent, even if it started as a consensual encounter, you know, in my case, I consented to have um, sex with a condom with this person. And so by removing the condom, we are no longer in a consensual encounter. And some states recognize that and some states don't. Some states don't understand that that's a violation.
0: Right, which it so clearly is. We uh, talked about this, Janessa, in our several episodes on domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And that the aggressor is looking for control either over the contraception Capability of their partner, or so in that case, like we're looking at power and control, or even just blatant selfishness. This is what I want because it feels better, and you have to submit. Whatever the aggressor is thinking or wanting, or whatever, it is exactly what you're saying. It is removing consent, it is changing the rules without your knowing and that is assault that is abuse that is not okay yeah so it's interesting that what you're saying is certain states like the it's all over the place
1: yeah they don't know what to do with it and that was the strangest part for me was that we had had those discussions and it wasn't like he was reluctant of like oh i don't really like condoms i don't i prefer not to use condoms When we talked about it, you know, when I brought up the idea of using condoms, he was like, sure, that's if that's what you're comfortable with. Um, There was never any sort of hesitation or argument from his side. And so there was no reason for me to believe that this was happening because he never raised any sort of reservation or doubt, probably because he had the plan to do this from the beginning. And so he just didn't feel the need to argue about it. But um, didn't get any sense of hesitation, so I had no reason to question that this is what was happening.
0: Right, and that's an aggressor ploy. It's called lying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like blatant lying. But this is a great, like, segue into the next thing I really want to talk with you about, which is body autonomy. Yeah. Um, within the context of this experience you just shared, how, how would you talk to us about what you've learned and how you feel about body autonomy?
1: Yeah, it really changed the way that I think about body autonomy and consent and all of these kinds of things. And for me, body autonomy is all about the right for a person to make decisions about their body, to have control over their body without... These external pressures and coercion, and you know, outright deception, things like that, being able to make those decisions and having this experience really changed how I think about this in a much broader scale. Um, One thing I've always been very uh, pro choice, I've always been very much in the camp of people should be able to choose what they want for their own body, and that includes people who are pregnant, they should be able to make that choice about their bodies. And sometimes people would challenge me and they would say, you know, why do you believe that? And it gave me just another argument. I mean, I already had arguments mm-hmm. about people being able to, you know, make choices. We should not be legislating women's bodies and things like that. But being able to say, that's your body, that's your body and you have the choice of what happens to your body. And if you know, if this pregnancy is not viable outside of your body and you decide to terminate it, that should be respected. You should have that choice. Um, and, you know, serious things like that, where we talk about legislation around abortion, talking about trans healthcare is a big thing that's coming up right now. Um, you mm-hmm. know, people who are trans being able to access healthcare to say, this is how I want my body to be. I feel like my body is not matching up with the identity that i have with who i am and so i want to be able to change that and they should be able to access that that's part of body autonomy all the way down to even you know kids i think about when i was a kid if there was a friend of the family or a relative that i was maybe uncomfortable around and your parents tell you oh go give them a hug go give them a kiss or whatever you know if children feel uncomfortable around a person that should be respected we should be teaching. I'm so
0: glad you said that.
1: Yeah. We should be teaching people from young childhood age that you have control over your body. And if you don't want to hug the creepy uncle, don't hug the creepy uncle.
0: Don't hug the creepy uncle. You don't have to. (laughs) Right. And like, this is what we teach in empowerment self-defense classes when we're working with kids is exactly that. Like you own your body. No one else can tell you what you have to do with it or what you should do with it or keeping secrets about it or anything else like this own it. And, you know, it's, it's done, you know, with kids, we message it very in particular ways and work with the parents and all of that stuff. And, and parents are a big part of that, especially when the kids are, are younger, but yeah, body autonomy from the time you're very young, learning how, to own your own body and what it feels like to live in your body, because this is a life skill.
1: Yeah. And I think it is so important with kids because of the message that it sends. I mean, children, for the most part, are not super good at putting on these sort of social masks. So like kids are just the way that they are. So if they feel uncomfortable around somebody, I'm not saying that that automatically means something is going on, but that tells me something because this little person who hasn't figured out how to like play the games and manipulate situations and things, they feel uncomfortable. And if we say, no, you have to give this person a hug or give them a kiss or do whatever you say you have to do from a very young age, that's telling them we're not going to listen to you if you feel so uncomfortable. So don't listen to yourself. Yeah. So if you have a yeah. bad feeling about this, don't listen to that. Do what makes other people happy. And exactly. and we're not going to listen to you. That's Don't tell children you're not going to listen to them because then if something does happen, they just feel like you're not going to listen because you've made it clear that that's not what you're doing.
0: Well, I think what, you know, for any parents who are listening, this is a really great conversation. If... You know, my kid is uncomfortable hugging somebody, or they feel uncomfortable with, you know, a certain type of touch. It, like you said, it doesn't mean that per- there's something wrong with that person, Uncle so and so, or, you know, giving a, a hug or whatever it is. But this is an opportunity to teach body autonomy yeah. by respecting that and saying, Excellent. I back you. You don't have to do it. Excellent. Fine. You know, we can stop doing blah, blah. And teaching those skills means that later on, one of the things that we know is when someone is being sexually assaulted, when we're on that continuum, for those of you who have been listening and know what that continuum is, I think it's episode number two or three, when something is making you uncomfortable, when we listen to that ourselves then we can make ourselves safer by taking steps, whatever those are. And what often happens, Janessa, is that we've been trained out of that. Yeah. So my body is feeling uncomfortable, but I ignore it because I've been taught not to trust it. So thank you for bringing it up because it's like so important. Absolutely. What about you, like with this, assault with this violation, has it changed the way you think about your own body autonomy or anything? Or It does. It does. And it mm-hmm. has
1: changed the way that I think about autonomy and also consent. And especially as a drag performer. And that's, I'm in this weird kind of space because I am a, I'm a drag performer and I also host a lot of the shows that I perform in. And so I've been creating this persona over the years and my persona is very, sexual is very body and raunchy. I mean that's part of what I do. That's kind of how I constructed this persona is I wanted on the surface I do the kind of old school glam drag. So I do lots of sequins and feathers and rhinestones and and big hair and big jewelry and big colorful makeup so that you see this sort of like beautiful, shining, glamorous sort of image and then I open my mouth and just trash spews out of it. I love that weird kind of juxtaposition. I think it's very John Waters. It's very, um, you know, it's a little bit punk rock. I like that. And so Uh that's been part of my thing is talking about sex. And also as a fat person, a lot of times in culture, we're not allowed to be sex positive and allowed to talk about the fact that we Like sex and have great sex and all these different kinds of things and so that was really important to me from the beginning of incorporating that of letting them know Mm -hmm. I am a sexual creature and You know, this is not something that is up for debate or discussion and so I have always been very kind of sexually aggressive in how I approach my emceeing where I talk about things and I share stories and things but I had to then take a step back and say, okay, what are people going to say if I talk about this story, if I talk about Mm. this experience? And again, knowing the sort of awful rape culture that we live in, immediately we go back to these ideas of, well, you know, were you really having those conversations? Were you really like, you know, I'm not sure because you present this sort of dirty, raunchy sort of persona, which is not connected to who I am in the bedroom. You know, that's the stage persona. Mm -hmm. And so that, that kind of perception from people and, you know, the fact that at drag shows, a lot of times we have, and I think that this is great that we're starting to have these conversations at drag shows because in the last few years, people have started to talk about the fact of you can't just grope the performers Because in some ways, drag queens bodies are sort of treated like community property, like nobody has any sort of, you know, problem with coming up and grabbing a fake boob or, you know, pinching your ass or any of those kinds of things. And we're starting to have these conversations about what's appropriate between, you know, an audience member and a performer and between the performer and the audience members you know, those kinds of things. And how do we negotiate that? And I think it's an important conversation. And certainly it's changed the way that I talk about consent when I'm hosting. There are certain jokes that I used to do that I don't do anymore, or I've changed how I do them, just because I think that my Mm -hmm. idea of consent has evolved.
0: And I want to just mention um, when we, when you were talking about, you know, how you present yourself and what are Mm -hmm. people going to think if I talk about this, that in this empowerment self-defense movement, one of the first things that we say is there is no victim blaming. So what happened to you to be clear was that you had an agreement regardless of your stage persona, regardless of anything else. And... Regardless of what you're wearing or where you're going, or if you had a drink or didn't, or any of that stuff, what happened was that someone else assaulted you and had power, which they took away from you. And it's not your fault. It's not because of what you wore or what you said. You said all the things, you did the things. And this person is the one that's to blame, not you. So that is something that we talk about all the time, just to be clear, to put the blame where it belongs, which is on the perpetrator, period. That's where it belongs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was certainly part of my (laughs) sort of healing process after that was working through those feelings and working through... You know, we live in a culture that wants to blame the victim and wants to try to come up with excuses for what the perpetrators do. And having to be really aware and cognizant of that while I worked through my healing process, so that anytime I felt like I was getting into a space where I was starting to blame myself, of stepping back and saying, This was not appropriate. This was not behavior that you caused, that you deserved. Any of that and just kind of taking a step back.
0: So, where are you now uh, with regards to what happened? You mentioned you were look, looking to get some sort of closure for yourself, but maybe not through legal channels. So, where are you with it all?
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't look too closely into the specifics of North Dakota laws, but North Dakota is mm-hmm. super conservative and yeah. we are always on the tail end of any sort of you know, progressive social movements. So I didn't even have to look into the laws to really easily come to the decision that I wasn't going to pursue legal action Um, Mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons, for the reason of, you know, having to go through all of that again, through this kind of victim blaming culture, Um, having to talk about it in these very legal contexts. And also because of the fact that the person that I had this exchange with is very closeted. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about outing. Um, I don't think people should be outed with the exception of politicians. If you are an elected politician and you are actively working against LGBTQ people, but you are secretly having same-sex business going on, I think you need to be outed, and I think you should be outed. Mm -hmm. But for private citizens, and I knew that that's what that meant. I knew that if I pursued that, that would be a way of outing him, and he still lives in his hometown, you know? And I didn't feel like I could pursue that, even though I knew that he deserved it. There was no question that if I did pursue that, he would deserve it. But I also, the way that I feel about outing and those kinds of things, I was like, I can't do that and feel okay about myself. And so I decided to pursue it through other ways. And, you know, that's, creativity has always been an anchor in my life. And so when things happen, I write about them. So I wrote a blog for my website, um, where I talk about body autonomy and I talk about what happened to me and I related it to this joke about mansplaining, which I love. Um, it's yeah. one of my favorite jokes where it says, where does a man get his water from the well actually? And uh, <laughs> that was one of my pieces that I'm really excited about. I'm really proud of that one. And uh, That's great. so I, you know, have channeled it through my writing. And I, these are things that I talk about. I talked about this at a Drake show where we had kind of a serious moment and that I'm sort of known at my drag shows where there's a lot of the trash talk and there's, you know, sexual jokes and things like that. But I usually have at least one part in the show where, you know, people have described it as I take them to church and we have a discussion Mm -hmm. about trans rights or, you know, racism in LGBTQ communities or these other things. And that was one of the things that I did at a show was I talked about stealthing and what that means. And, um, you know, tried to share that story with that audience to say, this is not okay. And if you experience that, this is not your fault and it's not okay. So, um, channeling it through my creative works has really been where I've been finding that closure.
0: That's so awesome. And somebody recently said to me, Don't expect to get closure with a narcissist (laughs) because they'll never admit that they did anything wrong, that that was true. Um, And so we'll also link to your webpage and that blog. Um, Are there any other like resources you think people should, if somebody's listening and they're like, oh, wait, that happened to me or... I have a feeling that might be happening to me. Are there any like specific resources or like organizations that are set up to help with this that you can think of off the top of your head?
1: Yeah. I didn't find anything specifically just because in North Dakota, we don't have a ton of variety of services. And so anything related to sexual assault would go through kind of this one main organization in town. But I think, Mm-hmm. Um Understanding that what you experienced is sexual assault that that taking away of consent is sexual assault um, and understanding that you have every right to seek out sexual assault services in your community, the organizations that work with sexual assault that is absolutely what happened to you, and so um understanding that and you know, understanding that you deserve to seek those services. Cause I think that was something I struggled with as well, is because anytime I started to come around to this idea of this was an assault, my brain kicked in and I would start to say, oh, but. If you're comparing this to somebody who experiences a rape or some other kind of sexual assault, I was like, it's not the same. And it took me a while, again, to kind of come through that process and step back and say, it's not about who wins, right? It's not about who has the worst experience. Um, Your trauma is just as valid, even if it's different from somebody else's trauma. And that was a hard lesson to come to was this idea that, yeah, it's not the same as some other people have. And, you know, and, and consider yourself lucky that you didn't have an experience like that. But you still get to own your trauma and you get to experience it um, because that's how you're going to heal from it. You have to be willing to acknowledge that this is what it is. This is a trauma. This is an assault.
0: And that is the beauty of you sharing your story with with me and my listeners And with your audience, this is the beauty of telling our shared experience, because every time I share my experience with you, every time you share your experience out in the world, we we make connections and we show other people that this happened to me. And if it happened to you, I can be a support person for you. And we can support one another and we can work on things together and we can help one another heal. And the sharing within a community, the sharing of our mutual stories and understanding, this can also be really healing. It's great. It's so great. I really appreciate you coming on to the Empowerment Podcast by Naga to share the story that you have had because you've so clearly thought through it. You're so clear in the sharing of your story and where you're at in your healing journey. Is there anything else that we should know about your experience or your journey or about stealthing or anything else we should know about you or anything else you want to say that we haven't talked about yet?
1: Um, just definitely if you want to come check out my website, I would love to have people come and check out um, my website. I don't have a lot of blogs there anymore. I had a website crash and our server got erased, um, but I was able to recover. Yeah, I know it was, it was very (laughs) traumatic, but luckily (gasps) I was able to recover some of the material. So I am planning to do some sort of, um, like through create space on Amazon. It's like a self-publishing Um, I want to eventually put some of these columns into like a book Um, because I have columns that I also wrote about when I got divorced and other kinds of things. And so I, I want to share that side of me as well. I think definitely come see a show. And if you want to check out my YouTube channel and learn about makeup and, you know, trash talk, different makeup techniques and things like that, I love to do that. But I also love to talk about this more serious stuff. And so Absolutely. I would love for anybody to stop by my website or stop by my YouTube channel. I'm very active in my YouTube channel comments. So if you leave a comment, um, I absolutely love to have a conversation. And I, that's how I cope with things is I am sort of a storyteller. And so to make sense of it, I like to talk about it and I like to roll it around in my mind and then try to put it into words. And that's how I make it make sense. So I hope that Um, If anybody feels like they don't have the words, that's why I like to share the story because some people, again, it's about that representation. If you don't see yourself and your experience reflected in the media and the content around you, it can be very isolating. And that includes experiences of trauma. So not just the positive things like coming to terms with my queer identity, but also about experience of trauma experiences of trauma. I think that being able to see that reflected in the culture and know that you're not alone is very, very important. So absolutely come check out my um, my website and my YouTube channel and have a conversation. I don't bite, I promise. So.
0: <laughs> so we'll link again in the episode description, you'll find a link to Janessa's webpage, YouTube channel, and there will also be links to that if you're on Facebook in the Empowerment project community, which if you're not a member yet, you're welcome to join. Just answer the questions because we keep it a safe space. And if you don't answer the questions, we don't know who you are. We're not letting you in. (laughs) That's so great. We'll link everybody to all of that stuff and they can carry on their conversation with you directly on YouTube and um, through your website. Thank you so much for spending the last 45-ish minutes with me and sharing your story. I appreciate it. And on behalf of my listeners, I also thank you. So thank you, Janessa.
1: Yes, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You're so welcome. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool. And this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! woo And hey, as a wrap-up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week, communicate with me, review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.